Well, we're going to take a, a little hiatus and field trip by request, and we'll really only spend a minimum amount of time on it unless you want to explore more. And I have a feeling you might want to, so that's fine if you do. But the question of women's ordination um, is really apropos and fitting for our times, especially because of the thorough biblical teaching, not just a matter of this verse says no, that's fine, that's sufficient, uh, but why does it say no? What's the rationale? What's underlying that in the biblical text? And really, frankly, in creation itself. So that's what we'll explore here briefly. And then if we have time, we'll jump back into the uh, parables, um, try to round out as much of Luke as we can before we move on to Matthew and the parables of, of judgment and that fifth discourse in Matthew. So let's begin with a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, bless our study of your word, that we might rightly understand your wisdom, that we might rightly understand the way in which you've ordered creation for our blessing and for our benefit. Grant us courage to believe that which you teach, and as all the more courage is necessary to live in accordance with that teaching, so grant it through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So a good place for us to start is with uh, one of the classic proof texts, so 1 Corinthians 14. And the method here is going to be to look at the explicit proof texts and then to delve more deeply into the rationale. And by the time we're done, hopefully have a better understanding of what it is to be male and female within the created order and why some things are not given to men and some things are not given to women. That's ultimately at the essence of the question whether or not women can be pastors. So 1 Corinthians 14, if we start at 33, if you're in the ESV, at least for the sake of the verse break there, 1 Corinthians 14, 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. They are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. Right off the bat, then, we see that Paul is doing sola scriptura theology. He's looking to the Old Testament, the law, and seeing that the law itself does not permit women to teach in the churches. Here, translated as speak, and that's fine. We don't need to quibble over any words. They're to keep silent. They're not permitted to speak. It's all fine translation, but should be in submission as the law also says. So this is a function of their submission is to not be speaking in the churches. Verse 35 continues, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So here we see that speaking would not, only, would not only include the making of assertions, but even the asking of questions. We could probably make a distinction as we do, for example, in our Sunday school classes, 
a question that is truly seeking, you know, information or something like that, a question asked in good faith. I don't think anyone would necessarily object to that. I don't think Paul necessarily would. Um, but a, as we all know, there are questions and then there are questions. <laughs> and there's a kind of question that is a questioning. <laughs> and that just outright is not permitted for women to do in the churches. Again, because of submission and that because of the word of God. So the proper order rather is that she should ask her husband at home. What if she doesn't have a husband? Who should she ask? Even though Paul doesn't say it. No, no. Whoever is overseeing her care and protecting her father. Yeah, exactly. So this is a, this is a point we'll get to um, maybe tangentially, but a woman is under the authority of her father until her father hands her over to her husband. And frankly, that authority of the father doesn't cease until he hands her over to a husband, and then she's under his authority. So if you've got daughters, as I do, uh, part of what you want to instruct them toward when they're looking for a godly spouse is, is this someone you can submit yourself to? One of the fundamental questions, do you trust this person enough to be your head and your guide? Because that's what it's going to be. I mean, that's how God created it. So um, those of you who just walked in, we're on a field trip here talking about women's uh, ordination and whether or not women can be pastors. And we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we just finished with verse 35. Uh, where Paul says it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Um, if she has a question or if she has something she um, desires to learn, you know, so maybe Paul even draws a, a stronger line in the sand than I just indicated. Um, <clears throat> then they should ask their husbands at home. So even, even there, as we just kind of meditate on this and stew on this, the way Paul seems to be seeing it, is that it's a subversion of her husband for her to ask directly. He should ask her husband because her husband is her head and the one who should know. And if he doesn't know, he can go find out and then he can tell her. <laughs> so if you've got an old, if you've got an alternative reading here, I'm all ears, but I think that that's what it's saying. Is that then going back what they were told when they were in the Exodus, you're supposed to be teaching them when you're lying down, standing up, sleeping, you know, going to bed, all that stuff. Is that what he was supposed to be doing to his household? Mm -hmm. so that's where, is that what he's referring back to? Yeah, and it's specifically charged to males in um, Old and New Testament as the heads of their families to lead their wives and lead their children, teach their wives, teach their children. Uh, wives are teachers within the homes of their children. That's it. So, you know, obviously, I think that there's room for. <laughs> I think that there's I think that there's some gray areas here. Like, I think, you know, as we probably all all of us who are married experience at home, there are domestic occurrences, shall we say, <clears throat> where submission isn't exactly what's going on. <laughs> and, you know, I think we can I think we can recognize that there's some tolerance for that. If, if the wife is conducting herself in good faith, a husband's not, you know, 
flustered by the fact that maybe she challenges some decision of his says, Hey, are you really sure about that? What about this other thing? I, I mean, I don't know, maybe you guys feel differently about it. I tend to appreciate that if it's done in good faith, but if it just tramples over me, I, now this is, this is probably going to rub everyone the wrong way. I think it's a sin for me to allow myself to be trampled. And I think that it's exactly what my flesh wants to do. It's exactly what the culture tells me a good husband should do is just lie down and take it. Just happy wife, happy life, let her trample away. Or even if it's a rare occurrence, let her trample. I I think that that's a sin. I think that we ought to act exactly against our flesh and exactly against the culture and say, before we even have a conversation about the topic at hand, you're out of order. Your way of approaching me is incorrect and wrong. And until we can get that settled, we're not even going to address the topic any longer. So I think that that's the kind of order of creation we've lost absolute sight of in our culture, but that God calls us to. And if we've lost sight of that, then we're going to look at this and be like, where, where on earth is Paul coming from? I don't get it. So again, then with that sort of room for gray, but also, you know, impetus to really maintain the order of creation, I think that there's that kind of gray in the church too, especially when our, in our Bible studies or, you know, if a, if a, you know, a woman in the congregation wants to grab me after this, after the service and ask me some question, if it's, if it's in good faith, I just don't take it as a, as an act of, you know, trying to domineer or a, a lack of submission or something. It just doesn't even enter my mind. But from time to time, you do experience that uh, in the church. And that is an opportunity to just say, hey, why don't you go ask your husband? Or why don't you go ask your father? Excuse me. When you say um, not to allow them to trample their husband, yeah. so Paul says for wives to respect yeah. your husbands and husbands. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, so. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you, you know, it's in some sense too, like we, we're, we're both um, plaintiff and judge because we're the ones offended by the behavior, but we're also given the task of judging. That's what it is to have authority ultimately to judge within the home. So you have to say, um, yeah, I'm the one that's injured, but I'm also the judge and I judge this to be outside the bounds of the order of creation, Right. Now, it's probably, you're probably not going to win any points by spelling it out or saying it exactly as I've said it, but you can by just whatever way works. I mean, this is where it's, there's some art involved and it's not pure science. Um, it would be a sin for you to allow yourself to be treated in a way that is not in keeping with the order of creation. Part, part of it. Uh, it's. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, sure can. So, well, first of all, I agree with you 100%. And um, what I'm thinking is, in in my life, uh, I have, I've learned wisdom from Rhonda, and I've learned that I have to listen sometimes to the voice of my wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, like if she's trying to hold me back from making an un- unwise decision or something. Um, and it's it's this little fine line, I think, you mentioned art and science. I think it's just sometimes it's a fine line between the attitude in which she approaches me. Um, you know, if she disagrees with something, 
and that's where usually either the conflict is or the sin takes place <clears throat> where say she says no i'm i don't care what you decide i'm not going to go along with that that sort of attitude you know uh i think is probably sinful um but then there's times where she will just softly say um you know i'm just i have a bad feeling about this i'm just i don't think this is wise um, so I think part of it is, I mean, I agree 100% what you're saying, but sometimes our wives have wisdom that maybe we have a blind spot, you know, sometimes uh, as guys and our wives' wisdom will help us to sort something out. And so I think it's the attitude that the, the wife comes to the husband at, at with will, uh, can solve a lot of conflicts, I think. Um, and then, of course, our my I look at my job as, uh, being mutually respectful and not just dismissing her concerns, I guess. So, um. uh, Absolutely. So if you look at other authority structures by way of analogy, they function just as you've described. Um, we've got at least an, one attorney in the, in the room and probably the rest of us have watched enough law and order to think that we're attorneys. <laughs> so, so a judge will listen and genuinely listen to the attorneys arguing the case and the different points of law, and correct me anytime if I'm if I'm wrong here, but in the end, he has the authority to make a decision. And if they subvert that authority, even their in their appeal that he would listen, they've crossed a line. The same thing would be true if you think of a uh, a, a captain of a ship and the second in command. A captain would be a fool if he didn't listen to the wisdom of the second in command. But the second in command needs to approach him within that authority structure and approach him respectfully. And if he's right, if the second in command is right, then a good captain, of course, is going to change his mind. And so also a husband. But that has to be done appropriately. And then even so, the captain ultimately makes the decision. And if the second in command gets bent out of shape over it, he can only get bent out of shape in so far as because he's second in command. An attorney can only get bent out of shape in so far as, because the judge ultimately has the authority there. Yeah, there, right. are other, there are other authority structures, I think, that can be leveraged to good use by way of analogy, so that a husband would be a fool not to listen to his wife and not to listen to his children. I mean, who knows? I tend to listen, try to listen to everyone. But ultimately, the decision lies with you, and the authority lies with you, and that structure has to be uh, that structure has to be in place. And then ultimately when a decision is made, um, that's your decision to make. So the next point I was going to make is, is that this almost to me in our culture has to start before, you know, the couple or say the couple decides to get married or starts to thinking about it in pastoral counseling. I think um, we were blessed to have a pastor who counseled both of us and walk us through some of these concepts you're talking about. Do you, you know, do you trust Randy to submit to him and vice versa? Can you respect your wife? So we were prepared and, you know, mentally and hopefully spiritually, it didn't always work out in real life, right? We crossed boundaries, both of us and, and you know, conflicts created. But when we went back to the those basic biblical uh, concepts, of, you know, for marriage, then we had peace and blessing. Yeah, great. God be praised so, for that. Yeah, please. So please. I just think our culture is not ready for, you know, whether a woman can speak in a church until we go back to the even further back. But it's it's a timely topic because I had a colleague recently pull me off to the side and 
she was so upset that her LCMS church will not let women be pastors. Ah, she was very upset. And I just told her, you need to, you need to talk to your husband. (laughs) (laughs) Great answer. Oh my gosh. Great answer. That was. (laughs) Yeah. David, you had your hand up. Um, I don't think so. So I know that the LCMS has, as of late, under great duress and social pressure, uh, narrowed down the scope of this verse to the divine service only. I think that that's preposterous. And I, and I stand with the founders of the LCMS and many generations of the LCMS, our leadership up until like circa 1960, Gene, what was happening then? And uh, likewise, then this is the case um, in the history of the LCMS, but in the history of the Magisterial Reformation all the way back. And it's expansive. So it is, uh, I mean, I'll just bluntly say it, women's suffrage within the church is an error. It's an error, not because women shouldn't have an opinion, they should, but their opinion should be expressed to their husband, and the husband, as the head of the family unit, should come and vote for the family unit. And then collectively and together, that forms So I think Paul's principles don't stop when the divine service ends. I think, as he says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. I don't think that that's just divine service. I think that that's everything. We have echoes of this retained even in our governing documents here at Faith, where a woman cannot hold the position of president, vice president, treasurer, or elders because those have been safeguarded as positions of authority uh, within the church. And the, specifically those that can have authority, direct authority over the, over the pastor, if he's an error in some way, shape or form. So um, I, yeah, I find myself in disagreement with the contemporary LCMS on this point, or at least uh, a, a large portion of the LCMS. I frankly don't know if it's even a, a minority or a majority, um, but I sort of, to paraphrase Chesterton, stand uh, with the majority of the dead who all would affirm exactly what I'm stating. Pastor? And more on that in a minute. I mean, this will become more clear. I know this is kind of maybe the opening salvo, and so everybody's reeling a little, but as we go along, you're going to see that this isn't some insane theory. It all coheres as a body. Mm -hmm. Yeah, please. So I have visited LCMS churches when I've traveled in the past. Mm-hmm. And I swear I've been to one or two where women would do the readings. Um, but it just seemed a little uncomfortable to me. And maybe this is why. I don't know. I, I don't know if that's against, uh, you know, they're not doing as LCMS says they can't do or not. Yeah, the scriptures say that the that... <laughs> The scriptures say that the scriptures are to be read and proclaimed by the pastor. That's what the scriptures themselves say. We got this idea that the elders should read the scriptures as a kind of uh, concession to Vatican II. 
Vatican II in the 1950s asserted that the scriptures were communally constructed, which is already higher criticism, not written by one author from God to the author to the people of God, but constructed by the community through a series of editing over the decades and centuries to become what they are today. It's a communal endeavor, and thus the community ought to read the community's text. Obviously, that's a false presupposition, a false practice built upon it, and it's new, it's novel in the churches. So why? I mean, if you want to, if you want to ration out, because to read the scriptures is not just to read them, it's to interpret them. I mean, most egregiously, I will, I'll never forget when we had a woman read from the pulpit that a woman should be silent in the churches. Just sort of indelibly marked on my soul. But I will also, and I'm not going to throw anybody on, under the bus, I will also never forget the times in which well-meaning, well-intentioned, godly elders, through intonation, misinterpreted and misread the scriptures publicly. That falls upon the pastor if he's delegated that. But why on earth has he delegated? Was his voice too tired? Could he not handle it? Right? What's the point? Right? And, and then why do we vet our pastors so stringently according to the biblical qualifications? So that the person whom we call to publicly proclaim God's word, to read it and exposit it, is free of all of those kinds of uh, obstacles that would prohibit someone from hearing it. But we subvert that entire process when we let um, anyone read the scriptures publicly because they're not vetted to that level and to that standard that the community requires, that God requires, that the church requires. So you always have the, yeah, just one second. So you always have the, um, you always have the possibility that someone's not willing to hear that word of God because of the person Who's reading it? That's precluded by the scriptures, and again, precluded by about 1950 years of church history. Okay, I someone was trying to get a word in. Please. Pastor, do you have a scriptural reference that we can use when we get into to discussions like this, where scriptures say that pastors only really should read the scriptures? Yeah, let me, I didn't prepare this specific point, so let me look that up for you. It's either in, uh, it's in one of the letters to Timothy or the letter to Titus, where he, where Paul talks to him about the reading. Maybe one of you all can Google that and find it. Um, He puts within the pastoral task, the public reading of the scriptures. Okay. So you will, you will find a proof text there. But again, I think if you're, if you're absorbing the deeper argumentation of what is the pastoral office? What's it supposed to do? Is it not the office of word and sacrament? Then why on earth are we giving the word away? It just it just makes no sense. And it subverts the qualifications you have for a pastor when you let um, anyone come up and read. It brings to my mind a situation that I remember. The person that was up reading the scripture, not the pastor, had issues in their own life that they were questionable as far as their integrity towards their wife. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But at church, that person was, a, it just all came out later, that person was 
questionable character, but yet they were reading the scripture. Yes. And then, and so I think uh, the church has to be real careful, I would think, and that's why it makes sense then pastors or somebody, you know, charge, yeah. like in this case, the victor or something that's only them. Yeah, so um, one example of this, even in the ministry of Jesus, you'll recall when he's at his home congregation, he's going to preach a sermon. He says, would the elder please grab the scroll of Isaiah and open to the passage? No, he himself turns to the scroll in Isaiah, opens it and reads it as a rabbi and as one who is communally charged to read and exposit the scriptures. Now, the proof text is 1 Timothy 4.13 where he, Paul directly instructs Timothy, a young pastor, and functioning something along the lines of how we would define a district president. But in his role as pastor, First uh, Timothy 4.13, English Standard Version, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. That's given to the pastoral office proper. If it's given to the laity, where's the verse that says it's given to the laity to publicly read, exhort, and teach the scriptures? So I know all of this is um, this is tangential to our conversation, but so far are we from women <laughs> reading the scriptures in the church? Um, and simply the reading of the scriptures in the church, what do we say after that? So um, the reading is completed, and the pastor will say, this is um, the gospel of the Lord, or the pastor will say, this is the word of the Lord. If he says, this is the word of the Lord, we say, thanks be to God. If he says, this is the gospel of the Lord, he says, praise be to thee, O Christ. What are we doing there? Am I, am I just like identifying Hey, even though I told you ahead of time that this is the epistle to the Ephesians, the first chapter, just reminding you that, hey, this is actually the word of God. And I didn't, you know, slip some uh, something else in there, you know, maybe some Mark Twain or. um, Yeah, no, what we're doing is I'm saying when I say this is the word of the Lord, I'm saying you've just heard the living voice of the living God. Now, it's spoken through a sinful man. And spoken through sinful lips, and maybe I stuttered and botched it. But anyway, even so, God, through means, is speaking to his people. That's why I say this is the word of the Lord, and the congregation says, thanks be to God, or praise be to thee, O Christ. We're saying, yes, we believe that. We have just heard the living voice of the living God. That's what's happening in the liturgy. That's why that stuff's there. So again, if we're hearing the living voice of the living God, should that be coming to the church through a woman? Perish the thought. And that's why Paul says it's it's shameful. It's shameful. Okay, so um, we have only just begun. Shall we dig in and get some more more evidence here? So I know some of you turn uh, to 1 Timothy 4 for that reference. If you want to just go to 1 Timothy 2... And we'll be at verse 12. 
So just for the sake of getting a little running start, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. I desire that, oh, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. All right, so there's a ton going on here, but you have a biblical rationale and a order of creation rationale presented here as the argument for why Paul says that women should learn quietly with all submissiveness and not teach, but not only not teach. And if you're reading the word of God, are you teaching? I certainly think so. (laughs) That's God's word. It is teaching. Any any other teaching I do had better flow from that and be underneath that. If you're going to say, I teach, but God doesn't, we've really got some things upside down. The word of Rhodey is teaching, but the word of God is not teaching. Again, perish the thought. That's insane. It's absolutely insane. So to proclaim the word of God publicly is to teach, no doubt about it. Um, But even more than, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Full stop. And he's going to base that on the order of creation. Now, as you're probably already guessing, this is, uh, is that an airplane going around or a car? It's a drone? Oh, cool. Probably spying on our Bible study. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my. Hey, 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 we can't hear the joke, so that's not fair. Oh, sorry about that. Sorry. There's there's some kind of electric uh, car or uh, airplane or drone or something buzzing around here, and we're indulging our conspiracy theories. <laughs> uh, so, just kidding. Yeah, so, so um, the a woman should not have authority over a man. Look what the Look what the basis of the argument is, and then you'll see how far-reaching this is. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, we're going to have this spelled out in detail here in a moment, because Paul does this full, thorough theology elsewhere. But shorthand, Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, that's enough to rankle a bunch of people already, because the sins of Adam and Eve at the garden are not identical, not even close. And probably most of what you heard, most of what I said during the first five or six years of my ministry 
It's just dead wrong. It's just nonsense. It's nonsense inculcated by the spirit of the age into the church that's kind of pressed upon us. If you spend enough time in the word of God and you're willing to say, I'm going to believe this instead of what I was taught, you'll end up here. Okay. So Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. When God names the sin of Eve, what is the sin? She listened to the serpent. When God names the sin of Adam, what sin does he name? That he listened to the serpent? No. That he listened to? Bingo. And that's how deeply rooted this disordering of creation goes. You want to know the very first time? Okay. The very first woman pastor was actually in 1850-ish or somewhere around there in a congregationalist church. That was it. And then feminism picked up and we've got what we've got today. But if you want to a tongue-in-cheek answer to where was the first female pastor, it was exactly when Eve took the sacrament of the tree and gave it to her husband, and he ate and perished. The first woman pastor giving a sacrament of death and proclaiming to him, this is good for food. Yeah, this is good for food. So... She So she is presented with the voice of God and the voice of the serpent, and she's deceived and takes the voice of the serpent. That's not Adam's choice. Adam is presented with the voice of God or the voice of the woman, and he submits to the woman. So that's what Paul is teaching here. And if you go read Genesis, I mean, because, you know, if you're going to believe Paul, you're going to read Genesis way different probably than you've been taught. And so you go back and read Genesis on its own, and you'll realize that it's exactly right. Paul's got it right. We don't. This, when you're talking, I just think of Jezebel and Ahab. <laughs> that's all I can think of. You know, I'm just thinking. That's all. You know, she led him with a note kind of thing, and all over, and he just, he just went. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, he, she signed decrees in his name and everything, and he just said, yeah, I, I cry in my bed because I don't get to feel. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, there's arguably a woman preacher in Revelation who is called Jezebel um, by John. So there would be another biblical example of a woman preacher. <laughs> and the biblical name for such people. Not uh, not priestess, not uh, pastoress, not any other nonsense, but maybe just Jezebel would be fitting. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, it is it is not the woman's place to have authority over a man or to teach a man. And this, like Paul's argument, essentially, don't you understand this? This is how everything went wrong in the first place. This complete subversion of the order of creation. Let us not echo that subversion, least of all in the churches of God. Now, that authority is encompassing. Again, I'm, I'm sorry, LCMS Incorporated of the 21st century. Uh, you don't get to narrow that down and say, well, you know, just from the invocation to the benediction. That's it. That's it. Other, other than that, everything goes. Is that what Paul says? Uh, that's not at all what he says. Says that a woman shouldn't have authority over man full stop. Now, there's broad implications to that. 
Um, because as Christians then who understand the scriptures and understand the order of creation, we should not have women in authority over us uh, in our homes. We should not have women in authority over us in the state, and we should not have women in authority over us in the church. Full stop. It's contrary to the order of creation. Okay, and then 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing. Now, the she is interesting, and I don't really care how we take it, because it ultimately both rivers converge to the same point. She can be understand to be Eve, that she will be saved through childbearing. Because remember what God says in Genesis, the seed of the woman, childbearing, will crush the serpent's head. But it's also true, more broadly, for the role of women. The role of women is not to have authority over men. The role of women is to bear children. Can men bear children? How sexist of God. Okay. Uh, no, God has designed men in such a way that their office is to have authority, and he's designed such, a whim, uh, such um, women in such a way that their blessing is to bear children. Those are, those are two fundamentally different blessings given by God to the different sexes. Uh, Peter Kraft has, um, he's a, I think he's retired probably by now. He's a, he's a Roman Catholic um, and an apologist. Uh, he was a prof at Boston College and a philosopher. Um, he makes the argument, I think this is really worth absorbing. I'm still working on it. That there's no, we've taken the word sex and we use that word for intercourse or other sexual activities, okay? But that's a categorical error. What you actually have are two sexes, male and female. And then you have appropriate relationships and inappropriate relationships between those two sexes. That's why you have the language of uh, knowing Abraham knew his wife, Sarah, or fornicating. David fornicated or committed adultery with Bathsheba. So the idea that two men can have sex is completely impossible and completely precluded. The two men share the same sex, and they're completely disordered in their relationship toward one another. A man who's, let's say, unmarried and a woman, let's say, who's unmarried, um, don't have sex, they fornicate. Unless they're in, so there is no um, knowing, know the two becoming one in the fullest sense outside of the marital union. Everything else is a disordering, a disordered relationship. But a lot of our problem is we've taken this, we've, we've committed a category error and we've said there's this thing called sex. Now who can have it? And Crave kind of argues that if you concede that point, it's not long before you get to this. Well, if both parties are consenting, then who am I to judge? So sort of recovering the importance of sex isn't something you do. It's something you are. And then there's appropriate physical relationship and inappropriate physical relationship is a much cleaner way to think and perceive the world in terms of category.
So that's worth throwing in here too, because a lot of our metal and mass, uh, and mass, um, in terms of culture with, oh, should we permit this? Should we not permit that? And, and when you have Christians trying to make a biblical argument for all this stuff, lots of times it's predicated upon this thing. Well, there is this thing called sex. Okay. No, no, there isn't. There's male and female. There's appropriate and inappropriate, um, or good and sinful. Okay, so the woman's role then is to be saved through childbearing, and this broadly applies to Christian women too, because you're saved by Christ, obviously by grace through faith on account of Christ. That's Paul's teaching everywhere. But what is their vocational duty? What is their actual walk in life to bear and raise children? That's what is given to women. So she will be saved through childbearing. If they, there's the plural, and really the singular she and the plural they is where all the argument happens in terms of, is this referring just to Mary or is Mary now, or sorry, Eve, Eve, or is Eve now a type of all women? And the answer is yes, all of the above. It's in regard to Eve, but because Eve is a type and and the source of all womankind, uh, all women are saved, all Christian women are saved. By remaining in their vocation, namely by childbearing, they become unsaved outside of salvation as soon as they turn and try to have authority over a man and preach and teach what hasn't been given to them. There they follow Eve, not as God made her, but Eve as she rebelled against God. Okay, so again, we're, believe it or not, just kind of scratching the surface. But I hope you can get, I hope you're seeing that this is more like Paul's like, you know, Paul's argument is not, well, women should be quiet during the divine service for no other reason than that I say so. Ah, It goes a lot deeper than that. And it's a lot more expansive than that. Pastor? Yes, sir. Um, I just wanted to point out here that, um, this is not necessarily a weak or a lower position. Um, it's not a biblical proverb, but it is nevertheless a proverb that the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Mm, yeah. Uh, women in that raising of the children have a lot of power. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, th- I think in a sense, they're the, like from a, from a husband's perspective, right, of, of this house, God has entrusted this household to me, then from the husband's perspective, the, the chief delegate, the chief uh, teacher by way of delegation is the woman to the children. Yeah, no doubt about it. But it is fascinating that in Ephesians, Paul lays fully on the husband, not on the parents, not on the woman, but fully on the husband to raise the children in the fear and the instruction of the Lord. Obviously, he's going to delegate that. He's going to do that in partnership with his wife. Uh, he's going to do that in partnership with the church. It takes a village to raise, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimate responsibility for that lies with the head of the household. Pastor, can you can you comment on the subject related to what we hear so often, even in the church, that our wives are our partners? Uh, Don't you know, listen to that. <laughs> really bad advice. I mean, it all comes down to what you mean by partner. So I'm just being ornery. You know, I, if you define partner biblically, I don't really care about that. That's fine. Um, but it's all in the definition of that word. 
So it is a mistake to view your wife within the role of the household as your equal. She's not. That That is the word of God, okay? She's not your child. That's another office. But she's not your fellow husband. And most of what America has taught us and the church has just absorbed unthinkingly is that your wife is your fellow husband. And that's what's meant by partner. And that's why I immediately recoil against that language. Um, now, she is, in terms of the structure of the household, a subordinate. Not as subordinate as the children, but a subordinate. And just as a first in command can say, hey, second in command, how do you think the best way to go is? And the second command says, well, clearly this. The first in command says, great idea. Go for it. That was better than what I was thinking. Okay. That's fine. The authority structure is in place and that's how Christian marriages frequently function. I mean, I'm not trying to set this up as if there's some uh, inherent conflict or tension between husband and wife. There's not, and there shouldn't be other than what's written into creation via the fall and the curse, because that's there too. And you can see that one of the chief aspects of the curse is that the woman's desire will be for her husband. Well, what does that desire mean? Everybody gets it wrong. If you go looking in context, which we should do for the next usage of that word in Genesis, you'll find it where God says to Cain, sin is at the door and its desire is for you. That is to say, sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. That's exactly what he tells Cain, right? It's exactly parallel to the curse is that the woman will desire to dominate you, but you must rule over her. If you want to, I don't even care if categorically you want to say that's not how God made it in the garden. Um, God made it in the garden more like a partnership. Um, there's a hierarchy, but there was never any tension or never any ruling over or any desire to dominate. Hey, fine. No quibble from me, really. I, you know, that we can take all that as a friendly amendment. But since the fall, this is the nature of things. And it's incumbent upon us as males to just recognize that, again, there's, there's art to all of this. There's relationship to all of this. But ultimately... God has ordered creation the way he's ordered it. And we're foolish if we don't acknowledge that. And we're sinful if we neglect it. Yeah. I think that what I was sort of getting at was the term partnership. I think in our culture does mean co-equal uh, even in churches. I've seen pastors get up and their wives are there and we're partners together. They're co-equal. Yeah. I think as Christians, we understand that there may be a partnership. Sure. Right. We're not pulling against each other. We're working together. But there is an order and an authority structure. Yeah. Now, I, one of the things that was really helpful for me as a building block and as a stepping stone to all of this is, is to recognize that this kind of dynamic is written into uh, the person of God or the Godhead himself. Okay. And what I mean by that is this. Think about the Athanasian Creed, where we confess that Christ is equal to the Father with respect to his divinity less than the father with respect to his humanity. Do you remember that line from the Athanasian Creed? Okay, so in the same way, a husband and a wife, or let's put it this way, a wife is equal to the husband in terms of her humanity, equally a human being, equally a creature of God, equally redeemed by Christ. 
but she's less than the man in relation to the family hierarchy. So in the same way, we're not demeaning Christ in any way by saying he's equal to the father and less than the father, nor are we demeaning a woman saying she's equal to the man and yet less than the man. You see how that works? So then it would be no surprise that if God is that way of himself, that then he would imprint that into the crown of his creation, namely male, female, and children. That economy, if you will, within God, that ontology being all equal, and yet that um, economy or that ordering, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that reflects itself into the crown of creation um, in husband and wife, and then by extension also children. Okay, let's uh, let's go a little forward. So um, I think what we can do is if you just look very quickly at what follows, chapter 3, verse 1, I'll do this fast until we get to the point. So immediately on the heels of Adam was not deceived. So I'm sorry if I misspoke. First Timothy 3, 1, that's where we are. So right on the heels of Adam was not deceived, the woman was deceived, women should be silent, women should not have authority over men. Then he says in 3.1, the saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that's bishop or the pastoral office, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. If Paul leaves that open to women, why does he say the husband of one wife? Why doesn't he say, hey, we're all equal in Christ, so anything goes? Clearly, the Greek language has that ability. Paul distinctly chooses not to use it. So even here, the qualification of overseers, and I won't belabor the point because he repeats it to another young pastor named Titus in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. He says the identical thing. The qualifications for overseers, is part of that is that they be male. And husband of one wife is a sort of, as one prof uh, put it to me, like a one-woman man, okay? That is to say that even if he's not married, he's not precluded from the office. But if he is the husband of more than one wife, he's going to have more than enough to do. He doesn't need a church also. And where Paul says that it's, you know, it's one of the advantages if God's given you the supernatural gift of celibacy, one of the advantages to not being married is you can expend yourself the way you know you should at the church. I probably didn't really viscerally feel that until I had children. (laughs) That's absolutely true. Just spread a little more thin, you know. Okay, so we've got, um, we've kind of lined up, if you're tracking, uh, four proof texts then, 1 Corinthians 14.34, 1 Timothy 2.12, 1 Timothy 3.1, and then the one I just alluded to, Titus 1.5. Now back to where we began, 1 Corinthians 11.10. And here we're going to get the fullness, or a fuller treatment, I should say, of Paul's argument, what he's already, the point that he's already made in First Timothy. I have to tell you this anecdotally. I mean, for what it's worth, it, in and of itself as a point, it doesn't stand and it doesn't mean anything. But in the whole context, I think it. I think it will. Um, can't. I couldn't even begin to recall how many times I've done premarital or marital counseling. 
And when I say these things to couples, fully expecting the woman to just fly off the handle at me, not once has she. That anecdotal as it may be, is indicative and, and evidence of the fact that this is written deeply within godly women and they know it's right and they know it's true. <laughs> and generally speaking, anecdotally, when couples start to apply some of these principles, things start to go better. Um, one more tangent here, just again, based on experience, the more a man gives over to the idea of American religion and the idea of American Christianity, that your job is to sacrifice yourself for the woman and anything that she says, your job is to make it happen. In our minds as males, seems like the better I do that, the more she'll love me. In fact, the opposite is true. The more you do that, the more she'll resent you because she'll see your her dominance over you. She won't respect you. She'll see you as someone who can be trampled by her. How on earth can you protect her against the forces of the world, protect her children against the malevolent forces outside of the home? So by being firm, gentle always, uh, loving always, uh, not being nasty, not being harsh with your women, with your woman, as um, Paul says elsewhere, but being firm and not allowing yourself to be ruffled or rattled or subverted by even when she says do this and you say no even if there's a little superficial anger there's a deeper sense of what a relief what a relief there's someone here who will look after me and who is strong enough to not be dominated by me i bet they could stand up to other forces if necessary for our good so Tangents, anecdotes, um, but in fact, some of these principles have turned marriages that were on the brink of a divorce the other direction. Instead of threatening every other day, the wife threatening every other day, I'm going to divorce you, that threat goes away and kind of ties into a deeper principle that a vocational principle if you're afraid to lose anything in your life, that becomes a leverage point that can and will be used against you. Sometimes in order to regain your marriage, you have to be utterly willing to lose it. So when she says X, Y, and Z is going to happen, if you do that, great, let it happen. If you think it's going to be pleasant for you, it's not. If you mistake my tenderness towards you and my indulgence of you for weakness, you're gravely mistaken and you'll find out if necessary. That sounds counterintuitive, but sometimes it is that very thing that will stop the threats of, I'm going to divorce you. I hate you. Blah, blah, blah. All of a sudden she goes, Ooh, I better watch what I say. This is someone that I used to be able to trifle with, but I can't trifle with anymore. So take that for what it is. But anecdotally, that has been uh, precisely the kind of symptoms that present themselves in my study. And by the time we do a thorough treatment of this and start to apply that, things get they don't get instantly better. I mean, that's the other lie with marriages is that they're going to get better. They're going to get healed. You're going to get a, to a state of healthiness. Spoiler alert, that never happens. Okay. 
it, it, we're in a fallen world subjected to tumult by the by the curse itself. There's always going to be tension and strife, but it's how you navigate that. And as you navigate that, both of you in a godly way can become a happy, productive marriage by and large. Um, but that doesn't mean the tensions are going to go away. And it doesn't mean that these kinds of dynamics aren't going to recur. Okay, so be that as it may, just since we're running short on time too, 1 Corinthians 14.34. And I'm not going to, I've already talked too long. I'm not going to get to treat this as deeply as I had intended. Wait a minute, I'm sorry. I said 14.34, that's where we started. I want to go back to 1 Corinthians 11. Sorry, sorry to have a flip unnecessarily here. 1 Corinthians 11, and then um, just... Verse two. Now, if we can, if we can, it'll be expedient. Don't get, don't get lost on the head coverings right now. Okay. Try to stick with the argument that's undergirding the head coverings. All right. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. All right. He's building a hierarchy. The head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. Notice that in this case, the head of the, the wife is not Christ. That's one of the, the, the things that gets slipped into the church is, oh, well, if you both just have Christ as your head, your marriage will be great. That's not what Paul says. And it's worth noting that already a, a slight but all-important distortion has taken place. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. God, Christ, husband, wife. He doesn't say it, but we could put children underneath, of course. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cut, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. Is woman then the image and glory of God? No, or at least not the glory. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Who did Adam come from? Woman? He came from God. Who did woman come from? God came from Adam. And that's Paul's point. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman. Here is a line for the centuries. Embroider this on a pillow. Neither was man created for woman. There, there goes the mutuality. There goes the co the complementarianism in the wrong way. You were not made for your wife. Your wife was made for you. Man was not made for the woman, but woman from the man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And then we do this whole head covering, this whole angel thing. Okay. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born from woman. So there's this beautiful kind of dance and symmetry in the creation. And 
Paul's not in any way demeaning women. I mean, how can you assert that men are ontologically greater than women if all men sense Eve come from woman? So he's precluding any categorical mistake here that we say that men are ontologically in their being by virtue of their creation superior to women. That's not the case. But it is the case that within the ordering of creation, there's this hierarchy. As woman was made from man, so man is now born from woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself tell you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God, which is read in this way. It's misread all the time, which is read in this way. If if anyone is in contentious, tough luck, get in line, because we have no such practice as allowing women to be in church with their heads uncovered, nor do any of the churches of God. So that's Paul. And you can see then that the basis of all of this is tied intimately into the order of creation. All right. So with we have no waning minutes. We're over. Let me make one final point. If you got to leave, no problem. Okay. And then I'll hang out for you to sling darts at me. If you don't like what I've said, that's fine. Um, all right. So once you've done this, now go back on the question of women pastors and women authority and just survey the scriptures. Ultimately, this is maybe even more convincing than the particular verses themselves. You have Adam and Eve in Genesis, right? Then when God orders his people, it's male headship is indicated even by something like Abraham having multiple wives. But what wives in scripture have multiple husbands? Never happens. Because there's an ordering involved. When the Levitical priesthood comes about, does God invite women of the tribe of Levi to participate? No, but the men and only some of those men to serve as priests proper. So all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. The 70 elders who ascend to Mount Sinai are male. The 70 whom Jesus sends out are male. The 12 whom Jesus chooses are male. And then all of the capital A apostles are male. There's apostles in the broad sense, sent ones, and in the narrow sense of apostle. And then from that flows the pastoral office where we hear Paul saying that pastors are to be male and women are to be in submission and not be in authority and not teach. So it's a holistic uh, program and it stretches the whole of the Bible and the whole of creation history. And that's how it comes to us today. So that along with 1850 years in which you don't find women pastors in the church. And then in 1850, you find one and maybe a couple more. And then it picks up speed with feminism and the sexual revolution and the spirit of our age, where we've just gone bananas on these things. You can tell where the real heresies are. If I sit here and talk about justification by grace through faith, no one is going to get rankled. You can tell where the real heresies are, because those are the things that if I read God's word to you and explain God's word to you, you're going to get queasy in your stomach. And I sympathize because I do too. And I have to, and you know, 
but that's where you can detect the real heresies of our age. So the things that make you queasy, the things that make you go, oh my gosh, or the things that make you go, if I say that, I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> that's a heresy. And you can know that you're sniffing around in the right place. Okay, hopefully then that will give you a sense and a broad sense for why women shouldn't be pastors. And we've got a bunch of other errors in our thinking in all three of the estates, the estate of the family, the estate of the state, and the estate of the church. Sorry, I've taken you over and I'm sorry I don't have more time for dialogue. Like I said, I'll hang out and you guys online, I won't leave, I'll hang out. Okay, but for the sake of those that need to go, let's just close up uh, by saying the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us. All of you guys online, appreciate it. Yeah. 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 Sure. I mean, I, my take is um, that's so far down the line that I'm not even really interested in addressing it. I don't, but, but my, my suspicion is that it's not really an issue because of those dynamics and because there is some gray. You know, there, there is some gray in all of these things. I take no offense when women ask me a question, if it's asked in good faith. I, I have no problem reading an article written by a woman. Um, I, you know, depending on the subject, I wouldn't learn theology from a woman. Um, but depending on the subject, why not? If I'm voluntarily saying, what do you know and what do you have to teach me? I don't now, am I, am I still too steeped in American culture and an error here? I don't think so, but it's possible. That's about the best I can do for you on that question. You know, um, I don't think in terms of secular teaching, because that kind of ties in with the question of working outside the home um, as well. It's tangential, and it wouldn't be long until we got there. Um, again, I think that there's some gray involved there. And I think that um, while the Bible might there speak in generalities, but not absolutes, that's my take on some of those questions. At least at this stage of the game, it's not worth getting wrapped around the axle about. Uh, we've got bigger fish upstream to fry before we can. And then as we do that, other questions will kind of find their answer and their resolve downstream. Pastor, that that uh, I don't know if that question was about a woman working outside the home, but um, if it was, I uh, Women teaching in specific and then, yeah, tying into outside the home. Mm-hmm. Oh, OK. So I've been greatly helped by uh, the Proverbs 31 woman. You know, she's 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 a hard worker. Right. I mean, she obviously is working in a business. If you look at it, she's selling things, she's making things. So I, I look at that woman as a, a sort of an example of a woman who's working in some sense. She's not idle. So I don't. I've never had any problem with a woman at working outside the home, but I know that some people feel that that may be crossed over the line, kind of considering what we looked at tonight. 
you know, I'm sensitive to to both sides of that conversation. I think it's a conversation we should have after we get some of these bigger things sorted out. I mean, just all all cards on the table. My wife works outside the home part time. I don't think I'm in violation of the scriptures. I have a clean conscience. I do hold out the possibility that I'm wrong, that I'm enculturated. And, you know, and maybe (laughs) I have some things clarified in my mind in regard to that. That's fine. Um, But what I am asserting in in that regard, you know, to you tonight is I do think that there's some gray areas there um, in our culture. And I think a lot of it is, you know, it when you see it is authority being subverted. Is it being used in a way that's contrary to creation or is it not? And I think if we just allow ourselves that flexibility in some of these categories, we can come to godly conclusions without being draconian in our approach. Yeah. I just told Rhonda she can't work for Bud Light. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That's good. Yeah. Very. Would you be up for in? Our church voter meetings to have one vote per family with what discussed. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I want the women in our congregation to have input. Their input is extremely valuable. Yeah. So even even with women's suffrage in the civil sphere, the consequence. I mean, it's just, so on paper it sounds like, hey, should women citizens? have the right to vote, aren't they every bit as valued members of society as male citizens? And the answer to all of that is, yes, of course, no problem. And for that reason, many went along with it. But the unintended, or from Satan's perspective, quite intended consequence is you destroy the family unit with that seemingly innocent move. Now it's no longer a family unit. It's you as an individual, your wife as an individual. Marriage is just a contract between you two. Since it's just a contract between you two, and it's subject to the government as a contract, any produce from that contract is also under our authority. As Biden has come right out and said openly, your children belong to us. (laughs) It's all of a piece, and it's all a supra-intelligence animating these things, and that intelligence is evil and malevolent and contrary to Christ. So something seemingly innocent like women's suffrage actually destroys the family. And that, um, so the way that this would have to be approached, Barry, and I don't want to get things going too quickly, I need to be able to have the men in the congregation understand this. I need to have them teach the women to understand this. We need to let this brew and simmer and the people in the congregation themselves say, hey, these are our governing documents and we want to change them to be in keeping with what God has given. There are LCMS congregations that have held out against women's suffrage for these reasons. Once upon a time, every LCMS congregation was against women's suffrage for these reasons. We got duped and bamboozled by the spirit of the age in many ways, and in particular in regard to this thing. But but the last thing I want to do is whenever our next voters meeting is some somehow force a vote on this and scandalize everyone who's never heard the biblical rationale, who's never had opportunity to absorb it. That's not a good way to proceed. I know that's not what you're saying, but yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, I think that is the goal. Mm -hmm. I'm going to head out, but thanks again. No, no darts for me. This actually was a good study because it helps me sort of think through my role as a husband as well. So thank you. Yep. Thanks, Randy. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Yeah, right. Are you saying that? Yes, we are. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go you're ahead. Saying that, 
Are you saying that translates it to the left-hand kingdom as well, that uh, disorder? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, and we even see that, I mean, the idea that we would have uh, women fighting wars for us is such is right. such an absurdity. I mean, the rest of the world, the rest of history would look at us as the biggest cowards, the most neutered of all males, that we would send our females out to fight in our stead. What is wrong with us? We've lost our minds and our testicles. So, yeah, that, and that flows from this idea of, well, if they, if they can govern us, why can't they fight for us? Those two ideas are connected, obviously. Right. Okay. Yeah. So my, my daughter Genevieve will ask me, Dad, why can't I be a pastor? Why can't I be a mom? <laughs> be a mom? She didn't give you to be a pastor. That's, I mean, that, and it is, as you can see from St. Paul, all the way down at that root level of what it means to be male and female. Not all females are mothers. Not all males are pastors. Uh, only some are called to be, some women are called to be mothers. Some women are called to be pastors, but the distinction is there at the distinction between the sexes doesn't have anything to do with me. So, I mean, I, a female, a female pastor is as impossible as a transvestite or a transgender or something like that. It's just impossible. It's a fiction. And no, they can't functionally do the job as well as a pastor either, or as well as a male either. Um, because if you've ever spent any time in the pastoral office, and if you've ever spent any time with women in the workforce, you'd understand that the two are completely incompatible, completely incompatible. Um, my wife uh, has worked predominantly with women. Again, I know this is an anecdotal argument, but maybe it resonates with you. My wife has worked predominantly with women. Before becoming a pastor, I worked in fields predominantly with women. All they do is fight. All they do is gossip. All they do is stir up drama. All every week is a new contention, and the males there are just have their heads down and are like, "Dear Lord, let this pass." Uh, women are not constituted one even functionally, and are not capable even functionally of the pastoral office. It's a simple fact, and I'm just unashamed to say it. Um, so even that argument of like, "Well, they could do it, but God doesn't permit it," is a trash argument. Just utterly rejected. Sorry if that came across too harsh, but <laughs> the only thing I find is that being married is that every time I see somebody get married, they seem like I don't know why, but the man gets a nose hook. They they go along and they are all of a sudden start unable to do anything, make decisions, and it just drives me to drink. Mm, you know, yeah. I can't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Ahab is just one. You know. He just turns into the biggest wimp. And then, you know, and then, I, and then Solomon really gets me. He had 700 wives. I'm thinking it's 365 days a year. How the hell are you going to teach, train, and do that if you have 700 wives? He's supposed to be the smartest man around. So my comment to men, yeah, you are smart somewhere, but you're also pretty stupid. I think he confesses as much in Ecclesiastes. It's yeah. like, look, if, if women would make it, if women would make you happy, I'd be the happiest man the world has ever known. And spoiler alert, I'm not. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly right. And the man always leaves the church he's supposed to be in. The women, you know, I can see that in the Old Testament. They they always go to the the evil part. They always go to the 
the part that God says, be faithful to me, and they marry the women of Gentiles, and they go to their church, their thing. They go to Moloch and all the other. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, lo and behold, there's not a single Orthodox female pastor. Why? Because the foundation upon what you build, and if your founda- the foundation of your office is rejecting the word of God, what fruit is going to grow from that tree? So, I mean, there, that's, an, that's a different argument, too. To me, it's a weaker argument. Um, but, yeah, it's an argument along those functional lines. Mm-hmm. You know, almost say inability that their women are still trying to take the fruit of the forbidden fruit and give it to the man. It hasn't stopped. It's still going. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. If we're not careful, we follow it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly right. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. <laughs> Have a good one, guys online. Thanks so much. Yep. Thanks, Pastor. Free to give me a buzz or if you got any questions, whatever. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs>